Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Spencer Syme, and he'll be answering your questions on New Mexico's trout waters. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Spencer a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right-hand column of our website to sign up. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll let you know when the next live show will, will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So you can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Feedspot, Feedspot, Player FM, or any of the other platforms you might be using. So if you have to leave early, you can return to website or any of the distribution platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you shared uh, our podcasts. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do so now. There's a couple of links on our homepage, and you can just click on that and share, share the knowledge. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted, and this is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc., doing businesses Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking about Spencer with Spencer Syme about New Mexico's trout waters. Douglas Outdoors is a manufacturer of premium quality fly rods, raising the expectations that anglers should expect in componentry, design, engineering, craftsmanship, and intern performance. Led by head rod designer Fred Contui, Douglas has achieved award-winning rods featuring eye-opening strength-to-weight ratios and dialed-in technique-specific actions and tapers that cater to most host of different species. Douglas Outdoors is truly a deep line of rods ranging from 12 weights to, for monster tarpon to two weights for tiny brook trout and everything else in between. Check them out at douglasoutdoors.com. Again, that's douglasoutdoors.com. Before we introduce Spencer, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, which is at askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Spencer's section that says, click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. And to find out more about what Stackpole has to offer, go to stackpolebooks.com. And here's how you can win. Uh, you must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something that Spencer and I talk about during the show. And just submit your answer along with your name and your location using the, the text box on our homepage and see if you can't win. Take notes, type fast, and maybe you'll win that book from Stackpole Books. Our guest tonight is Spencer Syme. Spencer lives a life devoted to fishing. He cast his first fly at age 8 and tied his first fly at age 12. To satisfy his true wandering spirit, Spencer spent most of his adult life in waders. He guided his first trip in Boulder Creek in 1995. The next several years brought forth some amazing adventures, which eventually landed him back in northern New Mexico in 2002. He has guided the Southern Rockies ever since. 
He has an affinity for classic salmon flies. The complexity and beauty have kept his attention for many years. It was through this hobby that Spencer learned how to dye tying materials and even make his own hooks. Spencer ties the classics using the old method of in hand with no vice or bobbin. Spencer's work has been represented in several publications, including Kirk Johnson's book, The Feather Thief. He is the owner and founder of Zia Fly Guide Service in Taos, New Mexico, and has been guiding in the area for 18 years. He lives with his wife, Sophia, daughter, Olivia uh, Pearl, and son, Ivo. Spencer, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Hi, Roger. It's great to be here. Did I pronounce your son your son's name right? Is it Ivo or Evo? <laughs> His name is Evo. Evo. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh huh. <laughs> All right. Good. Good. Well, I have scored on that one, I guess. <laughs> um. Anyway, yeah. Good to have you on. Um. Nice warm day in the Rockies here again, and uh, beautiful. This is my favorite time of year here in the Rockies. So, you must be having a great time. You said you're out guiding today, right? That's correct. Um, yes, I, it was a good day of dry fly fishing, and uh, actually it was so good we cut the dropper off and uh, had rises all day long. Uh, oh, it was, wow. It was wonderful. And, uh, yeah, it's. I think that new moon has something to do with it. Uh, but we had a full moon last week that was just making it tough in the mornings. But uh, I think it's. we're back in the full swing of things, at least for this week. Boy, that moon has a lot to do with it, doesn't it? I mean, all over the world, you know, you go down to, I mean, fishing in Belize, I was down there under a full moon, and, and the fishing was terrible. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, they just eat all night, you know, and in the morning they're yeah. full. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so, yeah. yeah. So what were what, what fly were they hitting on today? You know, today we were using, uh, we were actually starting to use hoppers today. Hoppers, yeah, um, okay. Yes, uh, Dave's hopper was my favorite one today that uh, we got the most rises on. And then just to mix it up a little bit, we started casting. Uh, I was tying on for my customers uh, a couple of beetle patterns that my seven-year-old daughter, Olivia, ties. And she ties a heck of a nice beetle pattern these days. Huh. <laughs> you and bet. And it's, uh, it's, uh, she's seven. Seven? <laughs> she's seven oh, old. my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Well, good for her, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's uh, that's starting early. Yeah, you you beat me by one year. I started when I was thirteen, but uh, um, yeah, you, <laughs> you started when you were twelve. So, but I haven't yeah. gone to where you've gone by any means. We'll talk about that later about the salmon flies. But um, well, let's uh, yeah. let's talk about New Mexico, and we're we're kind of um, restricting ourselves in the the northern New Mexico, um, uh, just really south of the the border from Colorado. Um, we're not going to address another famous fishery tonight, which is the San Juan, but that's on the other side of the state, so to speak, uh, a little further away than these from these waters, right? Yes, yes. The San Juan is a few hours from us, and uh, yeah. it's kind of out of reach for most of my guiding. Right, right. Yeah, it's kind of mm -hmm. its own thing over there. Got uh, you know, got its own thing. Yeah, I leave on. it to the professionals over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you bet. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, we got a question in from uh, Chris. He says he, he was asking, "What are your and hopefully we're covering them tonight? What are your three most scenic but also productive trout rivers or streams in New Mexico?" Oh, I love that question. Um, the Costilla Creek has my heart. Uh, it's high and lonesome, high meadows, and you really feel like you're out there in the middle of nowhere. 
And the, it's a small stream, about 15 to 20 feet wide. The next one is the Rio de los Pinos, and that is a river that runs. It's about an hour and 10 minutes northwest of Taos. It winds in and out of the Colorado border, but it is a beautifully wild stream, and it's probably the best dry fly stream that I've, that I've fished in many years, and we'll talk about that one later. And then my, my third one is, of course, the Rio Grande. The Rio Grande is just a wild, wild place. It's tough to get to which means that there are plenty of fish who have not been harassed. And, uh, and you're surrounded by, you know, it's not hard to find petroglyphs, and you're surrounded by these giant basalt boulders that are the size of small cars, and it literally feels like you're on another planet. Hmm. So those are my three top scenic places, and I also like to call that guide's day off water, uh, where we like to go fish on our days off in the area yeah 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 sounds nice so there you go chris three of your uh three places to put on your bucket list so yeah um and ron and uh i guess he splits his time in massachusetts and california wrote in and asked uh what's the best time of year to fish these waters oh gosh um you know i would say middle of june the fishing is fantastic just about anywhere you go around here. The bugs are hatching, the water is warming up, runoff is subsiding, and it is pretty consistent with most of our rivers here. That is one time of year that I can tell a customer that, hey, you know, it's going to be most likely that we're going to have a good day of catching. Um, yeah. Now, and the other time would be probably October, and we're getting into it, if we have the water, of course. Um, yeah. but, but I would say late June is probably the best. That's when all your best bugs are coming off, and uh, it's dry fly haven. <laughs> Can you fish these, uh, these rivers and creeks we're talking about all year long, though? Is it a good winter fishery? Or? It is. The Rio Grande is a, is a wonderful year-round fishery. It's... Uh, of course, in the Taos area, we can either we either cruise up or down river. Um, in the winter time, I typically like to go downstream of the Taos box, and uh, that's where we're still finding plenty of eager fish. And uh, but yes, we do have year-round fishing here, and some of the tributaries into the Rio Grande in the winter time do have some warm springs that feed in that keep that water from freezing over. And they do also help the, with the bug population uh, throughout the winter to help those fish keep feeding. And what kind of um, – now, all, all these rivers we're talking about, the Costilla, the, the Cimarron, uh, Rio Grande, mm -hmm. the, the Los Pinos, these are all um, – uh, none of these are tailwaters, right? Uh, the Cimarron is a tailwater. And oh, it is? The Costilla, okay. uh, yes, sir. The, and the Costilla is as well. Oh, okay. They are both, uh, the Cimarron rests right below Eagle Nest Lake, and the Eagle Nest Lake Dam is, uh, is kind of the authority on the flow there. However, you, it doesn't take long to get downstream to where there's more tributaries that are flowing in. Tolby Creek and Clear Creek, they do come in and uh, add some of the flow. But yes, uh, the Cimarron is a tailwater. The Costilla Creek is a tailwater as well. 
and uh, that comes out of uh, the reservoir that sits on Ted Turner's Bermejo Park Ranch. And so, yes, the costilla is as well. But they both fish, you know, it's, a, it's, it's amazing. They both do fish uh, very similar to freestone streams oh, okay. um, if, if you go downstream because there are a few tributaries that keep uh, allowing water to come in and keep that flow consistent. So Ted Turner uh, has a, a, a Ted Turner has a ranch up in Montana and down in New Mexico. <laughs> he sure does. He bought the he, he bought the Vermejo Park Ranch uh, back in about 1993. He purchased uh, the the Vermejo Ranch from uh, Pennzoil back in the day, and uh, I can't remember how many acres that thing is. I think it's got to be close to 200,000 acres. Uh, 200,000 acres. Oh, my gosh. You bet. <laughs> I guess we can get a little privacy there, huh? <laughs> oh, you bet you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, lucky lucky him. So, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, what species do you target in these, these waters? You know, uh, we have a lot of wild browns. In the Rio Grande is home to some of the biggest wild browns that I've seen in any place. And that is kind of the name of the game here for the wild, self-sustaining populations of the fish. We do find quite a few rainbows, some big, plump, healthy rainbows you can find down in the gorge, as well as the Los Pinos. The Los Pinos, they do stock the rainbows pretty regularly. And then on the Costilla Creek, um, we have uh, it's it's home to the native Rio Grande cutthroat, and that is one of the few strongholds for that fish, and uh, that is the only native fish that we have here in New Mexico as far as trout are concerned. Hmm. Um, is is the Rio Grande cutthroat, and uh, yeah, they've that fish is uh, around here. They have some uh, hardship with the browns having a hard time coexisting and with the introduction of rainbows as well they're hybridizing rather rapidly creating cut bows mm. and uh, slowly losing some of their genetic identity however i think uh, due to some uh, moves by the forest service and department of game and fish here in new mexico there are some initiatives to help bring those cutthroats back in strong numbers and every year in March, the local Enchanted Circle chapter of Trout Unlimited, we have, for many years now, we've hiked uh, cutthroat fingerlings down into the gorge and released them and uh, in an effort to help them uh, replenish down there. So they're still here, and uh, but the browns are sustaining, and they are vicious in places. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, you keep saying the gorge. What's the gorge? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. The Rio Grande is uh, is the river that runs through the gorge, through the Rio okay. Grande Gorge. And it's, a, uh, it's also known as the Taos Box. It starts up above wild and scenic rivers uh, right around the Colorado-New Mexico border and continues almost down to Pilar is where the, the box is or the gorge. And uh, it is a it's it's deep in some places it's a thousand feet deep uh, below wow. the the surface table of our land and it is a really really uh, wild place down there mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, filled with the basalt boulders and there's lots of bighorn sheep out there and it's not too uncommon to find your share of petroglyphs 
that have been carved in over a thousand years ago down in the gorge. But the gorge is a very ancient place, and it's held populations of fish for many, many years. Now, um, Bill C. in Idaho was asking about that Rio Grande uh, cutthroat, and he's wanting to know if it was held in this water. So you said, was it Castilla? That the the Costilla Creek, yes, sir. Okay. The the Costilla Creek is uh, is is one of the cutthroat uh, as far as public water goes, publicly accessible water that runs through the national forest uh, as well as some publicly accessed private land. The Costilla Creek is home to lots of the Rio Grande cutthroats. Mm. You can find them all up and down in there. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about the the Browns, and the, it brought back um, a conversation I had with Terry Gunn, who's down there in um, Lee's Ferry, mm-hmm. and runs his guide service down there. And that's a you know um, the Marble Canyon and Lee's Ferry there, the tailwater there is coming out of Glen Canyon Dam, and um, they introduced some Browns there years ago, and uh, it was really a rainbow fishery, and the put the browns in and he said now the browns have starting to take over and they're eating Mm -hmm. a lot of the uh, native fishes there which they're trying to protect in the Grand Canyon you know uh, and this is the beginning Mm -hmm. of the Grand Canyon but they um, uh, he says they've actually put a bounty on these uh, browns down there Uh, I think it was a forty dollars a fish or something (laughs) to get rid of the browns and these are huge wow. browns, he says. They're, they're really magnificent mm-hmm. right now, and, and they're trying to get them out of there. So it seems like everywhere you go, wherever, we, wherever man messes, <laughs> we don't quite get it right, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Just when you make somebody happy, like a fly fisherman and gets a huge brown down there and leaves Ferry, then soon enough they start getting rid of them, you know, so you can't win, I guess. <laughs> right. Well, the browns are, are tricky. I mean, they're fall spawners, and uh, yeah. the, they are brute from the get-go. They're very strong, and young browns will eat little cutthroat fingerlings. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's they're a big threat, but and they're very heat-tolerant fish. Um, right. When I say very, I mean marginal. I mean, I guess it's uh, – you know, browns, I've seen them feeding in waters above 70 degrees, and whereas the rainbows and cutthroats, I mean, they are down, and it is dangerous for them. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I can't remember, remember who I was talking to on the show, but I was always under the impression that, you know, if you have like a tailwater fishery, like um, I know it's this way up on the Green River, and uh, mm-hmm. is that up nearest the dam, um, you know, the upper part of the tailwaters tend to be rainbows because it's cooler water. Mm-hmm. And that as you go further downstream, you start picking up more browns. Uh, but then we were talking, I forget where it was, but it was it was different uh, in this fishery. And I can't remember the fishery now, but but they were saying, no, browns are generally right up there at the, the tailwaters uh, along with the rainbows. And But I, I always thought that, you know, the temperature tolerance you're talking about, made those, you know, that they liked it warmer. But is, is that true, or do they just just able to you live know, it, there more readily? I don't know if it's local, you know, it's kind of local knowledge around here that the browns do feed more in the warmer waters. I'm not sure if they really prefer it so much, uh, but I do know that they will continue to feed. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. Browns develop those teeth a little bit earlier than the rainbows do 
in their life cycle. And I wonder if that has something to do with their survival as well in the fall when the terrestrials are coming off. You know, they're able to just gobble down much more food and stuff. But it's, it's interesting to me about the browns because here on the Cimarron River, uh, the Cimarron is a fantastic brown trout fishery. And those fish, there's tons of browns all the way up to the dam. They are all over the place. And mm. the state keeps in, you know, stocking with uh, tree-ployed rainbows. And, you know, the browns are there to stay. I mean, they are, that is still a brown <laughs> fishery, as well as the Rio Chama below the Alvado Reservoir. Uh, that's another big brown trout fishery. That's some of the biggest browns in the state are over there on the Rio Chama. Um, wow. And, boy, they, you'll find them all the way up to the dam. And that water uh, can be nice and cool. And, uh, boy, they're just feeding like crazy. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think in the later part of the summer, you know, you get into August, September, some of the warmer months, I do notice that we start catching more browns and the rainbows are kind of still sitting down. They're not as eager. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it's uh, they all act according to their environment, you know, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Is, I guess they have to make mm-hmm. the best of it whatever situation they have, you know. Um, right. We got a uh, comment in here uh, on the Internet from uh, Rod Brashears in, uh, in Amarillo, and I know he's written in before because I think he comes up and fishes in New Mexico a lot. So, um, But he says mm-hmm. Com- Comanche Creek is still full of Rio Grande cuts. He is absolutely correct. As a matter of fact, I guided, uh, I guided a trip on the, the lower Costilla yesterday. And it was a morning half-day trip, and I ran up after uh, um, after saying goodbye to my customers, and I drove up along Comanche Creek to take a look at it. And it is really low, but my goodness, there are still plenty of Rio Grande cutthroats in there. He is absolutely right. You know, it sounds like a mm-hmm. nice place to go. <laughs> oh yeah, it's, the water's yeah. low, and I didn't I didn't really want to harass them too much because they've yeah. kind of got the chips stacked against them right now with this lower water that we're kind of experiencing up there but uh yeah. boy they're, they're still there and and believe it or not there's even some tributaries that lead into uh the comanche creek uh one called elkhorn creek which is teeny tiny like literally a foot wide and uh there are cutthroats up and in there um <laughs> one interesting wow. thing about cutthroats i wanted to discuss is uh, many years ago, there was a, a forest fire that was happening, uh, and this being the Rio Grande watershed and the cutthroat's native habitat, there was a big forest fire up on the Forbes Ranch that was up close to, just over the Colorado border, and uh, and that was a brown trout fishery, and it wiped out all those fish. This was around 2002. And we decided, I was working for an outfitter who was, uh, we were guiding on that ranch. We decided to leave that creek alone for five or six years and not stock it at all, not replenish it, just let it be. And it was interesting because six years later, I stepped foot in that creek and it was full of cutthroats again. And Mm. it was, I think it's because those little repositories of cutthroats and those high mountain streams they start coming back down and trickling back down into the main channel slowly but surely once the, the predatory fish are wiped out. And yeah, uh, that's really yeah. promising to me. And patience is, uh, is a beautiful thing in, in nature. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it's kind of 
I guess you could say self-correcting. You know what I mean? Um, right. You know, right. You, you go back in the woods and you'll find an an old uh, road or whatever, and even if it was partially paved, up out of the cracks are coming trees and stuff, and it's just, you know, it's just going to take it back. <laughs> but That's right. um, uh, another thing I, I heard the other day is that uh, it was a, I think it was a book I was reading called Origins, and they were talking about, you know, all the 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 places in time that the earth has gone through from when the universe was born and, and so on and so on. But what they were saying is man, when you talk about, the, you know, our, our time on the, on the planet or in the universe or whatever is very small in the scope of, of the age, you know, of the universe, very small. We're just yeah. like a pin dot, but man has had more effect on earth uh, in a negative way than than happened in millions of years, you know. So I thought That's that right. was pretty poignant. It was like, you're right, you know. We are having a huge effect uh, that we don't know what it's going to be in the future. But I thought that was kind of That's, an interesting that, statement. That's right. And it brings forth to me the, the most, the biggest looming question of, uh, that's separating a couple of ideologies is, are humans of nature or are humans from nature, and you know, I I tend to feel like we're part of it. We're part of the big circle around us, and it is our job to be stewards of uh, of these wild fish and these uh, beautiful streams and keep yeah. them going. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can do that and all do our our part. Well, listen, uh, Spencer, we uh, we were having such a good time here. I missed my break, so uh, <laughs> let's take a little break here, and I'll be right back. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience in coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. That's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Spencer Syme about New Mexico's trout waters. If you'd like to ask Spencer a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box at the bottom and uh, send us your question. And we'll try to answer as many of them as we can tonight. So, Spencer, I always ask my guests, hey, what's going on in your fly fishing world? Um, tell us a little bit about your, your guide service and other things you're doing down there in, in the sure. fly fishing Sure. Well, uh, I founded uh, Zia Fly Guide Service about uh, seven years ago. Um, I have been guiding in the Taos area for the last 18 years. I, uh, I specialize in uh, trying to find uncrowded places in the southern Rockies to provide my guests with, uh, with experiences that revolve around the fish and their surroundings. Also, um, I am a bit of a historian, and I really, really love digging down deep into the heritage of our beloved sports. And so I'd like to introduce 
my customers to uh, to fishing some of the old patterns and some of the old way through our day. It never dominates, but it uh, but it definitely is there. And uh, it's what I really love to create with a customer is that spirit of wanderlust, uh, the spirit of getting in your truck and driving towards the hills in search for uh, for something that hasn't been seen in a while. Um, I feel like that is still out there, and uh, and I love to pass that along uh, to both my guests and my children as well. I feel like a day of fishing, uh, the fish lead us to these beautiful places, but it's the experience and the journey that uh, that really pays off in the end. And if we get to see some fish and uh, and hold them in our hands, I mean, my goodness, that's a job well done. But that's been pretty much my scene here, and my fly tying has been a, a big part of it. One of my favorite things that I love about fly fishing, and I pass it along to my customers, is as a fly tire and as an angler, you know, here we are using uh, using materials from one creature, being a chicken or deer hair or elk hair, to imitate another creature, being the insect, in order to catch another creature, being the fish. And being a part of that chain is just magical. And uh, when I can get someone uh, to get in tune with that, man, it's, it is a really a neat experience. Um, oh, I've never thought about it that way. Yeah, that's an <laughs> interesting way to think about it. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, where, and your website is where people can find you best? Uh, yes, it's, uh, website? my website is ziafly.com, uh, Z-I-A-F-L-Y.com. Great. And, and uh, where did you get Zia from? So Zia is the New Mexico state flag. Uh, if you can oh. imagine in our flag, we have a, it's a yellow flag with a red symbol. It's a circle with uh, four rays going out in four directions. Uh, that is the Zia symbol. It, it came from the Zia Pueblo here in New Mexico. Oh. And uh, it's got a lot of symbolism to it. It's the four directions and the four elements and the four stages in life. And uh, and I am very much connected to that symbol, and it made a lot of sense to me. And it defines where we're located, of course, here in New Mexico, uh, mm-hmm. showing what we're about that's uh, unique. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Good. Mm-hmm. Well, now I know. <laughs> yeah, a lot of symbolism. Yeah. Well, let's mm-hmm. get back mm-hmm. to uh, talking about your neck of the woods here. And um, we've got some more questions. Uh, one that came in was, which of the rivers are best seen with a drift boat and which are good for wading? Mm, that's a good question. Well, um, all of our rivers around here fish really well wading. That is 99% of the trips that we do are all wade trips. There are some sections of the Rio Grande that can be drifted. I do recommend uh, an inflatable craft because there are plenty of rocks to bounce off of. There are, a, you know, for the, skilled, uh, for the skilled person at the oars, there are some sections that uh, you can row a hard shell boat, but it is still not advised. And the thing with the Rio Grande with the floating is that when the water is high enough to float, sometimes it's too high to fish. <laughs> so 
I highly recommend waiting if you plan to come and fish in this neck of the woods. And uh, leave the drift boat at home. If you've got an inflatable craft, there are some sections that, uh, that I can recommend. And uh, always uh, feel free to get in touch with me through my website, and I can advise you as to where to go that would be safe for an inflatable craft even. Okay, yeah. Uh, so what's it, uh, let's leave this, uh, my next question, to when we talk about the, uh, each of the, the fisheries themselves. The, uh, because I want to I find out how accessible they are on, on foot and so forth, because, you know, based mm -hmm. upon how young or old you are, you may have some issues <laughs> getting, getting through the brush or whatever. So we can talk about that on each one of these, about the access. Um, Another question, I prefer to dry fly fish. Can you give us a synopsis of what we can expect as dry fly fishermen? Sure. The dry fly fishing here is really the star of the show. The, uh, typically when we're looking at uh, post-runoff levels, starting in middle to late June, all the way into the fall, all of our streams are uh, very dry fly friendly. And... Uh, of course, uh, running a dropper is always optional as well, but not required. But the Los Pinos River is probably my favorite dry fly river of all. And uh, at any given time uh, in the summer when it's fishing well, in the, uh, typically in, the, in mid, late June, there's three hatches going on at the same time. And you've got to figure out which, which hatch the fish are keying in on. And that's always mm -hmm. a lot of fun puzzle to solve. But yes, all of our rivers are wonderful for dry fly. But if you're a dry fly angler, we are, I would say, to avoid May <laughs> and early June. Those are going to be higher water runoff run and all that. Uh, winter time, you know, we do turn into quite the midge fishery. So, you know, Griffiths gnats and stuff like that in most of mm -hmm. our rivers in the area for the dry fly angler. Right, right. Okay. Um, speaking of hatches, Robert Silver is asking about when the best time to catch the green drake hatch is in New Mexico. Oh, the green drakes. Uh, you know, I'm going to say the green drakes really start to take off around the third week of June, and they cruise right into about the first or second week of July in the okay. area. And for the best, me being based in Taos, about an hour away from us is the Conejos River, which is just over the border into Colorado. The green drakes are amazing over there that time of year. I recommend to uh, tie up your green drakes in several different varieties, different shades of green, uh, anywhere from a lime green down to a forest or a grass green. And size 12 typically is a great all-around size for our drakes here. The, the a lot of our other rivers we don't see a lot of other drakes and you know we don't see them much on the Cimarron or mm -hmm. the even the Costilla. I have seen them on the Rio Grande, but it's uh, they are few and far between. But they we will find drakes on the Los Pinos River as well as the Conejos River. Okay, okay. And uh, yeah, and that's this whole area is got this um, artificial border called <laughs> between Colorado right. and New Mexico. But that whole, uh, through Chama and that whole area is just beautiful. I, I love the Conejos area. 
um, just you know we've been down there camping and stuff and uh, it's always been beautiful so um, and just going over the pass to, to um, Chama and so forth is a beautiful mm -hmm. drive too yeah uh, another question came in asking about what rod weight and length do you recommend to fish these creeks and rivers well um, you know for uh for most practical purposes, I would say that your uh, nine foot four weight is going to get you by just about anywhere around here. I'm all about three to five weight rods in the area, and uh, nine foot should be ample for most rivers. Um, the Cimarron River tends to get a little tight in some places, so seven and a half or eight foot uh, is going to be more adequate in the Cimarron going down to about a three or a four weight. But for the Rio Grande, I am all about the full-on nine-foot, five-weight rod. I think that it's very versatile, and you can handle some of the bigger fish uh, that you might run into. But, yeah, you're going to probably want to, unless you're going for uh, northern pike, which we have plenty of here in the Rio Grande, or carp even, you know, you might, if you're targeting those species, I'd recommend to bring your seven-weight, six or seven-weight, but uh, other than that, if you're trout fishing, three to five weight ought to be just about right. Okay. So let's, uh, those are kind of got a lot of the general questions out of the way. Let's start talking about each one of these fisheries uh, more specifically, um, starting with Rio Costilla Creek. So orient us on the map if you can. I mean, we're not, some of us may be looking at one, but uh, you know, where, I, I don't know if it's best to describe all of these rivers sure. from Tahos as a starting point, or how, how would you tell us yeah, where it is? Yeah. I would say let's start out as if we're in Taos. Uh, the, the, the Costilla Creek, we would uh, head 40 miles north of Taos, directly north on Highway 522, and uh, that's going to take us into the little village of Costilla, New Mexico. That is about one mile shy of the Colorado border. You're going to turn east and start heading up along the Costilla Creek. The public access water starts about 12 miles up the river as you drive up, and you're going to hit the it's Rio Costilla Land and Cattle Association. You can drive, you can fish that. That is all public. You drive up another three miles or so, you're going to go into the Valle Vidal, um, which is national forest and you have another uh, about seven miles of the Costilla Creek until you hit Ted Turner's gate. And so there's <laughs> okay. plenty of <laughs> at which you need special permission, of course. And so, um, but that is pretty much orienting you along the Costilla. Uh, one important thing to keep in mind about the Costilla Creek is that the Valle Vidal does not open to the public until July 1st. Uh, it is open for fishing from July 1st to December 31st, and then closed from January 1st to uh, last day of June, and that is for elk calving, and uh, you are not allowed to uh, uh, go in there. But other than that, the that Rio Costilla Land and Cattle Association, you can fish that year-round. The river does get pretty low and stuff, but uh, too low to uh, drift a lot yeah. of flies. Uh, they do turn it off there at the dam, and you're kind of left at the mercy of the Comanche Creek there. Mm, okay, okay. So, what what kind of river is this? Uh, is it a? It is a it, it's a tailwater, uh, and it's a for the most part, it's a small stream, 
The uh, most fishable flows uh, start at about 12 cubic feet per second, and it fishes pretty well up until about 40 or 50 cubic feet per second. Um, okay. And that's it's it's a wadeable stream. It's wide open. There's not a lot of trees around, so you don't have to worry too much about getting hung up in that back cast. And uh, which also means, though, that that you are uh, open to getting uh, pushed around by the wind a little bit on some of those windier days. And is it uh, good public access? I mean, is it access? It by really road is. Or? It yeah. really is. It's by road. Um, there are several pull-offs and parking areas for anglers to to just pull right off on the side of the road, and you know you're either 10 feet from the river or 70 feet from the river. It's not. It is a very uh, easy access for folks who don't want to walk that far or simply cannot walk that far. It's a very very friendly place to go up and uh, and to fish and to get to. Um, but the driving is a little bit. Uh, it takes a little while to get there. You know, here from Taos, it's uh, about an hour and 15 minutes, and all of a sudden, then you're into public water. So it, it's a little out of the way, but that's a good thing when it comes down to keeping the crowds away. And you work out of Taos? I do. I you, do. I'm based that's in where Taos, you meet your clients. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. your your hub, so to speak. There. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, what makes the Costilla so special. Well, what makes it so special is that it's high mountain country. It's uh, it is uh, reminiscent of a lot of areas I've seen in Montana and Wyoming. You know, you you don't hear sounds of traffic, and the hatches are unbelievable over there. You know, we we have lots of yellow sallies coming off uh, in the summer months. Grasshoppers are always a hit over there, but. Some of the things I love about the Costilla, I mean, it's you can catch native fish, and uh, that's your shot at catching a real, pure, uh, real grand cutthroat. That is your most likely spot. I love that place. And uh, and techniques you use to fish it uh, primarily, you know, te- uh, floating um, dries or sure, uh, yes, uh, floating dry flies, um, typically off of five X tippet. And uh, if you run a dropper, I'm going to recommend a 5X fluorocarbon dropper. I like the fluoro because it sinks a little faster, and it's a little bit uh, less visible in the water. And uh, it's a lot of high-sticking techniques uh, come into play over there. And uh, it's not a place where you need to cast very far. My recommendation is to keep your cast within 15 feet from where you're standing and you're going to catch more fish that way rather than trying to cast a lot further upstream. And it's a pretty cut-and-dry dry fly fishing stream. Uh-huh. And would it be a good place to use Tenkara rods? Tenkara, that is a beautiful place for Tenkara. Um, I, like I highly recommend it, and it's become a little popular over there. I'm seeing quite a few more uh, anglers up there without a reel. Um, it's been kind of exciting to see. I, I don't fish Tinkara myself, um, yeah. but I'm very familiar with it, and uh, I'm very aware that it's uh, it's actually picking up pretty nice. Uh, there's quite a few anglers showing up with Tinkara. And um, any particular fly patterns you're using? Sure. Um, the You know, like the yellow sallies and smaller 
stoneflies. Um, I love using a small stimulator around a size 16 in uh, olive as well as orange during some of the stonefly hatches. Terrestrials are fantastic in the fall. And uh, those are pretty good patterns up there. My secret up there, if I may, <laughs> is to, uh, when you come up to fish the Costilla Creek, um, is to, uh, if, especially if you're a fly tire, is to try to add a little, little something different from your standard run-of-the-mill pheasant tails and all that. Micro mayfly is a fantastic dropper pattern over there in olive or uh, even a light brown. And uh, I really am a big fan of changing up flies on the river, and not by tying a new fly on all the time, but by reorienting a fly around the hook shank and just twisting the fly material around the shank just a little bit and see if the, you can get that picky fish to take that thing. Hmm. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, you had mentioned uh, as a challenge there you could run into some wind. Um, because it sounds sure. like it's open there. Are there any other challenges to, to fishing that area that you would consider um, a challenge? Well, you know, we do have our share of deer flies over there. And those oh, jeez. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> deer flies up there, man, oh, my gosh. And, you know, you slap one, and then they come in droves. But uh, we, we don't have many mosquitoes or anything. Uh, I would say that most of the annoyances up there is the fact that Especially on weekends or holidays, it does get a little crowded at times, and okay. um, and you'll see in the morning people are making a mad dash. Especially in the first part of July, everyone's making a mad dash to run up to the Valle Vidal when it opens to the public. And my recommendation is to uh, either fish really early and try to get there and get your fishing in before people show up, or show up in the evening and start catching the evening hatch. But, yes, I would say that uh, most of the annoyances up there, especially in the summer months and weekends, uh, would be traffic, people driving up that dirt road that's washboarded up in their trucks really, really fast um, and stuff, all making a dash for the vibe at all. But uh, in the weekdays, I would say if you're going to fish the Costilla Creek in the summer months, Come during the weekdays, particularly, you know, Tuesdays and Wednesdays are fantastic. And yeah. uh, overall, uh, overall, the vibe between anglers is very, very friendly. Everyone seems to get along real well and uh, respect your space. Here in New Mexico, we're blessed with uncrowded rivers. So, you know, to me, too close is 60 yards away. <laughs> That's too close. Oh, okay. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, we're pretty spoiled here, but... There's not a lot of annoyances over there other than those darn deer flies. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I have terrible memories of deer flies. One being like years ago when we used to run rivers and have your shirt off before skin cancer was a big deal, you know, <laughs> and you're rowing down the river and you're going through a class three rapids and just then deer flies land on your back and take a couple chunks oh. of it. And you, and you can't do anything because you can't let go of the oars, you know. Right. <laughs> I mean, it, it's like, oh, just man, the pain of that. I still remember that. It was terrible. It was terrible. Anyway, let's not talk about deer flies. <laughs> it's no. too bad the fish don't eat them, you know. We, I'd, I'd put ten I of them know, on them. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, they got probably probably sting the inside of the, the trout's uh, stomach or something or bite it or whatever yeah. they do. Yeah. 
Oh. Anyway, well, let's talk about um, the Cimarron River next. Um, sure. Where is it from Taos? So the, the Cimarron River is going to be directly east from Taos. From Taos, you would head uh, directly east on Highway 64 towards uh, Eagle Nest Lake. You're going to drive up through Taos Canyon. It takes about 30 minutes to get over to the Tolby Campground, which is the beginning of the public water and the Eagle Man, I'm sorry, the uh, Cimarron Canyon State Park starts there and goes downstream for the next, oh, ten, uh, I'd say eight or ten miles. And that's where it's located. It's a, I would say, you know, it's if you've got just a short bit of time and you're in Taos and you want to fish for a half a day, Cimarron's a great bet. Okay, okay. And... Um... What type of river is it? Is it a freestone as well? or is it... uh, The Cimarron is a tailwater. Uh, it sits below the Eagle Nest Lake Dam, which was uh, built back in the 40s, I believe. And it, as you go down the canyon, down below some of the tributaries, you can find a little more water flowing in, which is a great thing during runoff because we fish closer to the dam during runoff, and we got nice fishable flows and then you run down, and all of a sudden it's too high to fish. But we do, that dam really makes it nice uh, for us as a place to go fish during high water time. So is the dam on the south end of that lake? Uh, the, the dam is actually, yes, it's, uh, it's on the south, well, it's, it's actually, I'm sorry, it's on the northeast part of Eagle Nest Lake is where you're going to find that dam. Oh, I see. It, it, and then it up at the north comes east. down mm-hmm. comes down to 64. Um, mm-hmm. Exactly. And, yeah, okay. And then it kind of follows, uh, the, the highway follows the river down there. So it looks like good exactly. access there, right? Is there it's great much? access. It's no hiking or anything. You just pull up, throw your waders on, and start fishing. If you're in the state park, which is the only public access, they do have a little fee that you pay. It's like $5 to park there anywhere along that state park there but the access is really easy okay okay and then um what kind of uh hatches do you have on this on this river well the cimarron if you're on the upper part closer to the dam we're going to be looking at typical tailwater stuff uh scuds um Mm -hmm. are very productive in olive or gray I like to fish them small, 16s and 18s in my scuds. And we're running into one of my favorite flies is uh, to fish on the Cimarron is the ginger dun. And I tie it in a size 12 and just use a ginger colored body uh, for the uh, ginger dubbing. And it's got a deer hair wings and tail on it with a ginger hackle. That fly is going to be your solid summer fly. I mean, that is your staple for the Cimarron River. Um, the uh, the Cimarron is also well known for a trico hatch that begins in late September and continues through October. And it's a late morning hatch. You'll see literally hundreds of thousands of them in clouds over the river and fish just gorging themselves on those tricos. The Cimarron is also, uh, for late summer, I recommend the yellow sally patterns in a round of size 16 starting in mid-late July. 
and stimulators. Uh, that's a great river for stimulators. Uh, there are some stoneflies that hatch uh, over there, including some of the giant salmon flies that come off in late in late June. I mean, those things are the size of birds sometimes, you know. But uh, but yeah, the uh, it's a very forgiving river as far as patterns go. You can also go with your attractor patterns, you know, your humpies and royal wolves uh, typically are really nice for the Cimarron, and they float well, so you can go crazy with the droppers. And one of my favorite flies to fish in the early summer, late spring, is going to be a Mercer's Microstone, 16s and 18s. It's that little yellow Microstone fly nymph. Uh, that's a very productive pattern over there for the Cimarron River. And um, you had mentioned the ginger dun. Now, is that is that uh, representing a particular mayfly, or is that a, more of a tractor pattern, or what would? There, there is actually a mayfly that comes off that's a ginger color, and huh. I don't, you know, and it, it's weird because I haven't actually. It's one of those things. I've been fishing the Cimarron River since I was eight years old, <laughs> and and I've seen those bugs coming off. And I, I tied my first ginger done when I was probably 14, 15 years old and tried to imitate one of those things. And it is, a, it is actually a mayfly that comes off, and it is rather large. And I don't know, it's not that it, it doesn't hatch uh, nearly as often as we can use it. That fly, which leads me to believe it's the ultimate attractor pattern, uh, that yeah. is not very well used and known. You can't walk into a fly shop and buy a ginger dun that easily. I know. That's, that's what was confusing. Them. Yeah, it's confusing right. to me. I'm going, well, I've never heard of that right. before. But, yeah. Sure. Oh, and, and if any of our listeners are uh, curious about it, feel free to reach me through my website and uh, shoot me an email, and I'll send you the pattern. Very, very good. And the, the trichos, when you fish the trico hatch, do you fish spinners? Do you fish adults? Um, how, how do you fish your trico hatch? You know, I fish. I love to fish a double dry method. I like to throw on a trico. Uh, in the morning, I'll start off with a parachute version of a trico. Um, I do like to start off with a cream body and bring a marker with me and simply just color the fly with the marker if they start refusing it. Just color that body in a little bit. And then always behind that, I will run a spinner behind it and see which one's doing best. If you're still not getting strikes, I do recommend the Comparadon version of the uh, Trico. Trico, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I love those Tricos. It's a, it's such a sweet hatch. And uh, But running double dry is definitely going to – improve your knowledge of what they're wanting to eat because those fish over there they do get moody one day they're after the parachutes next day they're after just the spinners or the comparadons but i do think that the even the pickiest fish will not refuse that comparadon if you're catching the decent drift uh that's drag free um, and, the, and I, I scale down to about 6x for those little okay. guys and the, the the cream body, I'm trying to remember, is that representative of the female trico? It is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, so and then it, yeah. you darken it up for the males if they're not taking the cream, then okay. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Carry yeah. a marker with you during trico season. Uh, Sharpies work great or even a, a brown Prismacolor marker. Yeah, okay. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. And when you tie your double drives together, are you going? Uh, are you tying to the eye of the the lead fly or? Um, no, I tie to the bend. bend. I tie to the bend of the bend. hook. Um, and then if if I'm guiding, I do that a lot. You know, it's it's one of those things with with uh, you know you get a much better. You know, you don't get many casts. Uh, or I'm sorry, you don't get many uh, tangles uh, with that method of going off the bend of the hook for your trailing fly. However, I have noticed, like, if I really want to really geek out during the uh, trico hatch and figure out what is uh, the most productive, I will actually tie uh, a triple surgeon's knot, run two free tag ends, and tie them to two separate tag ends. And uh, the drift seems way more realistic that way. They're able to drift in their own microcurrents much more freely, and you can only you can change one fly out without having to change the whole rig. Uh, and if you hang up on a tree, hey, you probably only lost one fly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, any challenges, particularly for this this river? You know, the Cimarron it does have some challenges. Um, you know, I, I do recommend a shorter rod, seven and a half, eight foot rod. Uh, seems to be ideal through the state park there. So, because there are, there is some brush and there's some cover, and if you're really wanting to find some of those bigger browns that are lurking, you're going to need to get in under the trees. And the bow and arrow cast can get you around there just fine. There is some poison ivy around quite a bit, so I don't. If you're going to wet wade, which is totally okay. Make sure you wear some pants, uh, some quick-dried pants. Shorts are not advised over there around poison okay. ivy in the summer months. Um, okay. the, uh, the other challenge that we're running into right now at this point is that our uh, New Mexico State Parks are closed to out-of-state visitors at the moment. Now, we're expecting our governor to uh, make a decision on this by this coming Friday, so we're all keeping our ears peeled to see if, uh, if our out-of-state friends can come and join us on, the, uh, on our state parks here in New Mexico, and that does include the San Juan as well. Uh, but we are all waiting with baited for that to happen, and that's a temporary challenge, let's hope. Uh, yeah, but all had, the other uh, challenges, you know, it's good. Okay. Yeah, I, I just was going to say I had a couple of questions coming in on the internet about that, so you you answered sure. the question before it was asked. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, out of staters can come in and fish uh, fish the rivers if it's not in a state park. Is that the case, or are we yes. not allowed um, in at all? Our, our uh, all of our uh, public water access that's not a state park is open uh, to the public. To fish, whether you're from in-state or out-of-state, you're not going to find anyone to come and bug you unless you're in a state park where they're going to want to see where you're resident of. But yes, and it's still right now, according to the state of New Mexico, they are recommending a 14-day quarantine if you're coming from a high-risk area. And you and I and everyone, we all know that it is hard to enforce, so it's kind of on the honor system and stuff. And uh, as always, uh, we're practicing some social distancing, which, of course, in the fishing world is a good thing. <laughs> we, yeah. we don't really want anyone within six feet of us anyway, much less yeah. 60 feet of us. Um, right. but, uh, but, you know, I think, you know, it's one of those things I think fishing, fly fishing outside is a very low-risk activity and all that. But, yes, our borders here in New Mexico are open 
to people traveling through New Mexico on their travels um, or even swinging through to fish. But the, there is a 14-day uh, quarantine that's being required right now okay. by our governor. And uh, like we say, uh, on Friday, we will know more if that gets updated. Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Let's, um, Spencer, let's take a quick break again, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about the Rio Grande and uh, and Los Pinos waters. So finish up with that. So hang tight, and I'll be right back. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats, like the Peacock Bass Study in Miami, Florida. Fly Fishers International core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish, to preserve and promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and to help ensure future generations can enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. Uh, These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Spencer Syme about New Mexico's trout waters. If you'd like to ask Spencer a question, just go to our homepage, fill out that form, and uh, we'll try to answer your question tonight. So, um, Spencer, moving on to the Rio Grande, we're going to have to move pretty quickly through the Rio Grande and Los Pinos here uh, as a matter of time. But um, where is it from uh, Taos, and uh, what kind of time uh, and distance do we have to travel? Well, the Rio Grande is the closest, uh, that's one of the closest rivers to us. It flows just to the west of us. It's a north and south river. The closest access from Taos is going to probably be at the John Dunn Bridge, about 20 minutes away. And uh, the access there at that point is really easy. You can drive up to the river. Also, the lower Rio Grande, uh, give yourself about 25 or 30 minutes to get down there to where you're driving next to the river. And when you say, where is that? Would, would that be? Oh, by, I'm sorry. The, it, by, it flows are, to the west of us. And, yes, the the John Dunn Bridge is up there by Arroyo Hondo, just north of Taos. And the uh, the lower uh, Rio Grande is going to be down by Pilar, um, okay. down That's, in yeah. the Aria Verde area. It's all Bureau of Land Management uh, land over there. Okay. Okay. Got that. And uh, you said you could float this river if you're using rubber? I guess you can. You can. It's uh, it's an expedition if you're wanting to get down into the gorge with a boat. Sometimes requires a couple of horses or mules or even uh, a makeshift oh, bicycle geez. to haul it down. <laughs> um, and it can be done. There are some friends of mine who have done several floats in the uh, middle box earlier this summer. But uh, yes, the best access with floating is going to be down closer to Pilar uh, in an inflatable. There are plenty of rocks to hit, and uh, expect a few uh, more fun flows, uh, class uh, you know, two and three rapids, and uh, the occasional class four on higher flows when, uh, this, when our uh, river's running above 2,000 CFS down there. 
it can get up to a class four real quick. And then down below Pilar, you can continue to float where it mellows out once again, and it's open to private boating. It does flow through a lot of private land, so you can't get off the water, but down there is all full of uh, smallmouth bass and some amazing carp down there, and uh, that is great inflatable water. So uh, and so it sounds like New Mexico has the same uh, river laws that Colorado does, where you can float through, but you can't drop anchor, stop, wade, that kind of thing? Yeah, so it's not advisable. Um, right now the laws are kind <laughs> of up in, up in the air. Some people are saying you can, some say you can't. I'm just going to say stay in the boat <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, keep yourself safe and uh, avoid any uh, conflict and keep your day really nice and relaxing and full of fish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Um, what, what's special about uh, the Rio Grande? Makes a difference in the Rio area. Grande is a is a freestone river and it flows all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. It's uh, it's an ancient river, and what I love about the Rio Grande is for the avid hiker or adventurous person, uh, the Rio Grande's got it for you. Um, if you are up for a pretty intense hike down into the gorge for the day, you can really get into some beautiful fish that haven't been harassed much. And if you talk to some of the locals around here who have uh, been born and raised here and fished here their whole lives, good luck getting secrets out of them because <laughs> Rio Grande is full of secrets. And for someone who's dedicated, you'll come across some of your own secrets here. And the Rio Grande is amazing with crayfish patterns. We are, we've got some great hatches going on. The, the caddis hatch is amazing in the uh, in the springtime before runoff kicks in some of those warmer days i mean you've got those caddis flies all up in your glasses and and those fish are all just looking straight up if the water's clear enough and you hit it that lucky year it can be just epic cool cool and mm -hmm. um it sounds like depending on where you are your challenges are going to be a little bit different <laughs> because it sounds like a, mm -hmm. a, 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 it's got a lot of different types of water and access. So anything you could pick out in particular other than hiking into the gorge or something? Well, yeah, I would say, you know, if you're a newcomer and you want to have a taste of the Rio Grande, you know, it's uh, if you're coming out in some of the more uh, pleasant weather, pleasant water temperatures and stuff, I would recommend heading up to the John Dunn Bridge outside of Arroyo Hondo, just north of Taos. And uh, you can park real close to the river there, hike downstream a little ways, you know, about 20 minutes, and then just start fishing your way up. Um, that's a nice introduction to the Rio Grande. Another would be down at Pilar where you're looking for more river access because the road there parallels the river. And you can just kind of drive up and down and, uh, and hole hop uh, through the day. Uh, but those are the easiest access for the people who are not the diehard devotees of, of punishment of hiking down into their gorge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a neat um, place. What about the, the Los Pinos now? Um, where is it? So the Los, Pinos, the Los Pinos is northwest of Taos. Um, the Los Pinos comes out of the San Juan Mountain Range, and it flows, it kind of winds in and out of the Colorado-New Mexico border. Um, up around the Trujillo Meadows is a nice place to hit the San Juan, and it's up there at Mancas Pass, but that's between Antonito and uh, Chama. Uh, yeah. It's kind of up that way. 
So Los Pinos winds down through lots of private land, uh, but then it enters into New Mexico, which is going to be in the state wildlife area and in the national forest there, in the Carson National Forest. Um, Los Pinos is one of the best dry fly fisheries I've ever seen, and it is, uh, it's a wild place. It's free stone for the most part, and it is, uh, it's a wide channel, so you have plenty of casting room. I recommend to hit the Los Pinos in June, uh, and then once again give it a shot in uh, October. Between those two times, the river gets a little bit hot and stuff. And if you aim to hit it in June when it's fishing really well, make sure you bring plenty of bug spray because those mosquitoes come out in squadrons. I mean, they're bad up there, man. They're uh, in June. I've seen uh, grown men run screaming from the river sometimes in uh, mosquito time. And so make sure you've got plenty of deet on you or uh, feeder side or whatever whatever it is. Uh, cigar smokers typically do a good job of not getting bit. <laughs> there you, <laughs> you go. Know. Yeah. But the Los Pinos is wonderful, and it's lovely access. It's, you can drive right up to the river and walk five feet. You're on the water. And uh, it's a great place to camp uh, right by the river, and uh, it's great fishing right through there. Cool, cool. Um and uh sounds like it's got a lot of special things attributes to it totally. um yeah any so so you say dry flies and are, are we talking you know mainly attractors like you were earlier uh in the evening yeah. or are you fishing I'm hatches say, uh, like oh it's a very hatch specific river okay. um the los pinos is a very hatch specific place you've got yellow sallies taking off we've got golden stones PMDs are taking off as well. It's a uh, and those fish are very keyed into it. They don't take too well to attractors on the Los Pinos as much. Okay. They really are keying in on actual bugs. So when you show up to fish the Los Pinos, make sure your dry fly box is fully stocked with a wide array of uh, of mayflies in various. Sh- uh, I, I'd say my sizes are going to be eighteen. Uh, 16, 14, and uh, your stimulators are going to be more like 12, 14, 16. Um, and what may, mayfly hatches do you get off that? Uh, PMDs are going crazy over there uh, in the okay. late summer, early fall. Um, it, the water's a little warm, but that's what they're keying in on. But the yellow sallies tend to be a uh, the star of the show, the little yellow stoneflies in a size 16 mm. with a little red butt at the end, right there at the bend of the hook. So um, make sure that if you're tying a yellow sally pattern, make sure you're tying one that's got a little bit of red right there at the end. Okay. All right. Well, we have a couple of um, questions here uh, about travel. One was, you know, if you're going to fish this part of New Mexico, where's the best place to stay? It's from Jason in Kentucky. Oh, okay. Um, Well, Taos is probably my favorite place to stay because you're centrally located between seven really, really nice rivers within an hour away. Um, Taos has lots and lots of, of uh, hotels um, to stay at, anywhere from just a really nice bed and room all the way to the luxury category. And, and we have our share of uh, vacation rentals here as well if you're looking for a whole house. But Taos is where I would recommend to stay. We've got a uh, a nice hotel that just uh, got re revamped, uh, 
the Don Fernando Hotel is very affordable, and it's a good, uh, solid place to book for uh, for the angler who just needs a clean bed. But yeah. the sky's the limit from there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very <laughs> uh, popular place to be. Um, mm-hmm. And Ron, in uh, who splits his time in Massachusetts and California, asked, "What does it cost to hire Spencer for two or three days?" Oh, <laughs> well, my rates, uh, they are on my website. Um, I do charge for, uh, assuming it's a full day, um, I am uh, 400 for one person, 450 for two, 500 for three. Full day of fishing is six to eight hours on the water. I include lunch and all flies and terminal tackle. And so if uh, that's just the daily rate. So I don't really do many package-type uh, deals, but uh, okay. but if we book ahead of time enough, we can get you three consecutive days in the calendar. There you go. Yeah, good. Okay, one thing, we're running out of time, but I want to finish up at least chatting a little bit because um, uh, I think a lot of people have uh, know about the book The Feather Thief, and mm-hmm. uh, but maybe a lot of them don't know that, um, that the concept or the, the very – early beginnings of that book uh, that you had something to do with. You want to tell the story about how that got started? Absolutely. I'll touch on it pretty quickly. Um, we, uh, so I, I've been a fly tire most of my life, and I got really tired of tying uh, <laughs> trout flies, just production, you know. So um, I decided one year, my wife was uh, in medical school down in Albuquerque, and I decided to start tying uh, uh, something with more challenge, and so I got into the world of classic salmon fly tying. Classic salmon flies were popular for Atlantic salmon in the British Isles and during the Victorian time, and they were very, very intricate. Uh, they had, they were flashy, and they had so many materials on them from so many different birds, and uh, and just the the color and the form really attracted me, and I started tying them first as presents for Christmas presents for my family. And then I got into it a little deeper, and I started realizing, man, I need to start tying with uh, some nicer feathers. And so that search of trying to find the actual feathers that uh, salmon fly, Atlantic salmon fly uh, tying requires, I started uh, running into several rabbit holes, anywhere from vintage taxidermy and trying to buy old flies just to take them apart to reuse the feathers. And uh, I eventually got into just dyeing my own feathers. I started dyeing uh, ringneck pheasant feathers to look like red ruff fruit crow uh, or blue chatterer. And I got into silk screening turkey feathers and dyeing them and trying to make them look just like some of the rare stuff that I couldn't find. Through that whole thing, I found that there were some tires, Willie. There was, uh, well, one tire in particular who uh, chose to take it another step further into his quest of finding the rarities. And he found himself breaking into the Natural History Museum outside of London. And uh, he stole 299 bird skins from the Natural History Museum, uh, it being the natural history heist of the century. And, uh, and it kind of, a lot of those feathers had uh, been sold uh, through other people a lot of the buyers had no idea what they were buying, uh, that they had come out of a museum and all that. So uh, I one day I was guiding a, a gentleman named uh, Kirk Johnson years ago, and uh, he was living in Taos as a writer. 
and uh, we came across, introduced him to the world of uh, fly tying, of classic fly tying. And uh, for the next seven years, uh, he took took it and ran with the investigation and uh, wrote The Feather Thief. And uh, I was with him along the way, uh, contributing to the story of, uh, you know, kind of just letting him know what, what we were about and what we were doing and, and stuff. And uh, But this guy, Edwin Rist, uh, who had broken into this museum, he did get caught. Um, he did... Uh, he, he did go to court, and he didn't serve any jail time, and the book will tell you why and all the ins <laughs> and outs. But you'll find that it's the most bizarre crime that, that I've ever seen, uh, yeah. that I've ever heard of. Like, you know, it's it, it's true crime, but it's nonviolent, which is kind of makes it an yeah. attractive read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what, uh, yeah. What, what, what I learned is that my world of fly tying is – much different than this world that you entered, which is very oh. bizarre in a lot of ways, um, and, it, and that was fascinating to me. Yeah, it is, and and you know I'm a historian, so you know I love reading about. I, I grabbed the old books that were published in the 1870s and 1880s, and I'm reading the way that these flies are supposed to be tied, and I started teaching myself how to tie a fly in hand without a vise, no bobbin tearing off lengths of Pearsall's gossamer silk, putting wax on there, and wrapping it around the hook shank. That's exactly how they tied them uh, up until uh, Captain Hale came in with a book on fly on salmon fly tying and, enter, and started using the vise. But the old way was to tie in hand, and I started wow. doing that. And those salmon flies, they don't – a lot of them, uh, when they were starting out, they didn't have a metal eye to the hook. So they were blind eye hooks that just tapered down to a shank, uh, to, to a point on the shank. And the eye, you had to tie it in using twisted Spanish silkworm gut. Well, I couldn't really find a lot of that gut, so I found myself raising Spanish silkworms and feeding them mulberry leaves and dissecting them and drawing down gut and, and twisting. And then, then I started running out of hooks to buy, so I started making my own hooks all myself just from scratch. And uh, and I still make hooks to this day, and that's what I do through the winter is making hooks for my fellow fly tires and uh, and stuff. So yeah, it's a if you really want to geek out and fall down into the dark side of fly tying, it does exist in uh, yeah. classic salmon flies. <laughs> yeah, and I think a lot of these uh, classic salmon fly tires, a lot of them don't even fish, right? I mean, it's like another. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a thing of it uh, in and of itself. Um, which, it it, it yeah, became a known. There was a big resurgence in the 1990s of uh, of these salmon flies that started coming up, and guys were tying at shows and who had no suntans at all. I mean, you know, they hadn't been out on a river <laughs> much, or or you'd find a lot of guys that are, are trout fishermen who would come out and and tie. And I was one of them. I fully admit, like I wasn't. I wasn't out there going after salmon and stuff. I was looking to tie something that looked challenging. So, but most, uh, a lot of them, well, I'd say most of these salmon fly tires do not fish them um, because they're, you know, you put 10 hours into a fly, you're going to want to frame that sucker or yeah. give it away as a gift <laughs> or sell it, right? Yeah. And so yeah. more and more, though, I'm starting to see more fly tires who tie these things start to fish them, including myself. And I even, I'll swing a salmon fly across the current trying to uh, to lure that fish. I mean, they look amazing in the water. 
and uh, and there's a reason why they were built that way. But I'll tell you, yeah, you're right. The most of the tires who are tying them real fancies, uh, I mean, they're tying them to be behind glass uh, and stuff. Yeah. But I do tie mine to fish. I always say, in case of fishing emergency, break glass. Um, <laughs> and uh, if it's in a frame, break the glass and fish that sucker because I tie them all to fish. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's been a it's been neat. And what it's done to my trout fly tying is it's totally changed the way I see uh, tying trout flies. It, it, mm-hmm. it they seem so much more simple now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. when we meet someday, Spencer, I'm going to have you show me how you tie a. Uh, Size 24 um, um, uh, blue winged olive in hand. <laughs> I want to say that. <laughs> I, I can do it with a pair of hemostats. I, I, oh, okay. I've got to use hemo. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. There is now, a limit, that, limit a to it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do it without a bobbin. That's, that's the Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, that's funny. Well, that's a, that's a great story, and, and hopefully uh, we're going to have Kirk uh, Johnson on the show for an interview, and we'll talk more specifically about the Feather Thief. But, uh, yeah, it's quite the story on how it got started, and uh, I find, found it a very interesting read. As, as Ray Simons mm-hmm. and, uh, just wrote in, he says, The Feather Thief is a great-slash-weird book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he, he it. said it perfectly. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it'll shed light on a whole new world for folks, and uh, uh, I'm glad you inspired um, Kirk to do that, and uh, he got it done. And it sounded like a lot of hard work. So um, it but, was, but it's done. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we've run out of time, and we're over time already. But uh, we had to squeeze that story in because uh, I'd be it'd be a shame not to. So, but stick with me for a few more minutes. We're going to give away a few prizes, and uh, including a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, and uh, and then we're also going to give away a book from Stackpole. I have a list of books that I have available, and if you win that, uh, then uh, you'll get to make your choice from that list of books. So um, i got to fire something up here. Give me just a second um, and get that going. Meanwhile, let me uh, let me just, uh, consider over time, I'm just going to run right into the, to the giveaways here. So just give me a second to fire up my database, because I can do a uh, random selection there. And... Uh, uh, it's going to take a second here, and let's see here. Sorry, folks, I'm a little unprepared here. Usually have this all fired up before I get going, and uh, just to be honest, spaced it out tonight. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Hate to admit that, but it happens, you know. Your okay. mind, your mind is in New Mexico. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had a good, uh, we did a little road trip a couple of years uh, ago and went, um, we went to, I forget the name, there's that caldera up there in northern, a sure, huge right, caldera. caldera. Yeah, that was really, really kind of interesting. And uh, mm-hmm. and that other, uh, the, the cliff uh, dwellings um, where they carved out of the cliff. Oh, uh, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, Sure. With, what's, yeah. I, I think it starts with a B or something, I want to think. Oh, it's uh, uh, over by Bandelier. It's at Bandelier. Yeah, Bandelier. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's some there's some cool things to uh, to see if you're down there fishing, too, uh, or if, you know, you're doing a family thing as well. Um, 
lots of other things to see down there. Um, okay, let's see here. Now I'm ready to go. Let's uh, see if we can get a drawing here and uh, give away some of these prizes. <laughs> How about, uh, looks like we've got one here, and you just check. All right, come on. Okay, for the, the one-year subscription to Fly Tying Journal is going to be Carl Palmer. Carl Palmer. So, Carl, you are getting a subscription to Fly Tying and Fishing Journal and uh, one-year subscription. So, congratulations to you. And I think he's in New York. So, good for you. And let me get the one more here. And it looks like for the um, uh, the membership to Fly Fishers International, uh, I've got Rod Breshears. Now, Rod, it seems like you might have won that before, but if you did, we'll figure out another gift to give you. So um, let me know about that. Uh, and if you, Carl and, and Rod, um, I will send you an email and uh, communicate with you after the show uh, to get these these prizes fulfilled for you. So uh, look for that, and we'll we'll get you taken care of. So congratulations to both you guys. Uh, as far as the now the um, the giveaway for the Stackpole books question is there was a let me see here on what creek. Let's see, river. Let's go with river. And what river was there a fly that you more than likely will not find in a fly shop? What's the name of that fly? And give me the name of the river, too. Okay? Name of the fly and the name of the river. I'm making it kind of hard tonight. <laughs> we'll see what they come up with. Nice. Uh, and let's see here. It takes a minute for them to, to hear the question and then to uh, Oh, sure, respond. sure. <laughs> okay, I've got some coming in here. You've got to give me uh, – uh, okay, there we go. Uh, nope, that's not quite right. <laughs> I'm getting a lot of the right rivers but not the right, uh, the right fly. And, okay, there we go. Um, we had uh, <laughs> David Myers sent him right after one another, <laughs> the river and, then, and the fly. <laughs> he's, he's saying the Cimarron and a Ginger Dunn. Is that correct? Correct. Ding, correct. Ding, ding. Okay. Good Good job. <laughs> and that was uh, uh, David Myers and Morrison. I'm, uh, I'm thinking Morrison, Colorado, just down the hill from me. Uh, so, um, David, send me, and you can use the same text box, uh, just send me your address. I've got your name. I've got your email address. I just need your address and to send that out uh, to you. And uh, I'll send you a list. You just pick one. Let me know, and then we'll get that shipped out uh, to you. So thanks for playing. And uh, we had a lot of a lot of answers coming in there, but that was the, the, the first one that I got that was totally correct. So thanks for playing, guys and gals. And uh, thoroughly enjoyed this tonight, Spencer. I'm glad we got together, and, and thank you so much for your mm -hmm. time and doing this doing the show with me tonight thank you roger this is awesome what a lot of fun man i hope yeah, to see a well, bunch good. of you guys up here in new mexico yeah well it's uh 
a lot of us would like to get out and do a little traveling and uh, fishing for sure, and hopefully it will get better. Just keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> so well, thanks for being with me, and um, hopefully everybody else, uh, if you haven't found our podcast archive, uh, just look at the top line of our, our website there in the header. You see uh, Podcast Archive. Go out there and search for stuff. I mean, just search for about anything, and you're going to find a show we've done on it. And you're bound to learn uh, a whole lot by doing so. So poke around, look around, and uh, listen to some of the other shows and, and, uh, and enjoy. Our next broadcast will be on October 7th, uh, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'm going to interview Rick Wallace. And our topic for the show will be fly fishing the island of Hokkaido, Hokkaido, Japan. Rick is a well-traveled Australian fly fisher who lived and fished uh, the island of Hokkaido in Japan extensively for four years. And unknown to many fly fishers, taimen, rainbow trout, char, and salmon are all prime targets on the island of Hokkaido. Timon can get, get as large as one meter there. So listen in and learn more about this fishery and find out where and when and how to fish this northernmost island in Japan. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, uh, Amato Books, uh, Douglas Outdoors, Baja Fly Fishing for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.